You're listening to the Sunday Messages podcast brought to you by Cypress Creek Church. Run out. My name is Sean. I get to serve on staff here part-time with Cypress Creek Church. Love the opportunity when I get to teach like I am today. But most of the time I'm sitting out there like you guys are. I'm listening, I'm taking it in, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm trying to anyway. Thinking about all the things that are going on that they're teaching about that I need to tell other people in my life to apply to them, you know, that kind of stuff. So I don't know how uh, last Sunday went for you when you were leaving, but I know a little bit of my experience, so I'm just curious what your experience was, because we started this series, if you were here, on joy. The idea really is the whole book of Philippians, but the, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And that concept of joy can strike us in different ways. So as I listened to the message and I thought about it afterwards even, I was like, joy, I don't joy, rejoice. I was all those things that Paul was saying about joy in there. And it's easy to say, well, sure. I mean, Jose can say those things. He's a pastor, so he's supposed to. He's young and he's handsome and he married out of his league. So that stuff's easy for him. But, you know... What about for us? Well, the good news is that wasn't Jose saying those things. That was what God said. And, but you could say, well, yeah, but you don't know my circumstances. I mean, this idea of rejoicing and joy has no application given how I'm, I'm living life right now, the situation I'm in, the things that are happening to me. And the good news is, you know, we can fall back on Paul. He's the one that wrote it and he was in prison. So we've got it all pretty bad. And some of you may have some of those ankle bracelets. Don't show your neighbors if you do, but y'all aren't in prison. Y'all are here. So that's, that's a step up from that. You can say, but I feel all these things. I feel sadness or hurt or anxiety or loss or trauma or wounds that are unhealed inside me. And this idea of joy is just in conflict with that. And that's okay because we learned also last week that, man, there's a lot of places in the Bible, the Old Testament, where they're talking about all their wounds and hurts pretty openly and at the same time saying, but we we need to figure out how to rejoice in the midst of that. So it's a little conflictual for me. I'm, I'm just telling you the truth. When I left, I'm a psychologist by nature. So what I do, you know, is I counsel people and they come to me. And they may come, you know, I get the privilege of listening to their stories. Maybe they've got some marital issue and and there's conflict with their spouse and there's all kinds of tension in the relationship and there's harsh words and a lack of willingness to listen and understand. And if I look at that person in the first session and say, hey, consider it pure joy when your spouse (laughs) belittles you that way. It doesn't seem to land in a healing way, you know, or they come to me and they say, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm lonely, Um, even had some suicidal thoughts, and I say something like, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's not going to be enough in those situations. Maybe they've suffered a loss. Maybe it's a widow who's lost somebody that they loved and loved for a long period of time. And to say, rejoice, I say it again, rejoice to that widow just doesn't really land in a good spot. The reality is a lot of these verses and these things that we're going to talk about in the book of Philippians, we're like, how does that actually apply? How do we put that into practice in real life in situations where people are hurting or things are going on? Today um, is actually our daughter Avery's 19th birthday. It would be her 19th birthday. Um, she, Christina carried her full term and she did not survive the birthing process. And we had a rough go with that. Our emotions, our hurt uh, around that. We got to hold sweet Avery. We got to love her. But it was, a, it was a hard time. We had a few weeks where we hunkered down and we were all together. 
as a family, people would come and care for us, and it was awesome. And then it came time to go back to church. And as fate would have it, our first day back in church in uh, Georgia, where we were going at the time where we were living, we showed up, and the pastor had a, a, just a riveting message on joy in that moment. And uh, not many of you probably know my wife, but I had two things. I was like, one of two things is going to happen in this moment. One, she's going to really be upset and, and, and cry. And I was hoping that was the thing that was going to happen. Because the other thing that could happen was she was going to go punch that dude in the face. <laughs> and then while she was standing there and he, she would say, are you rejoicing in your suffering right now, bud? Um, and uh, the reality is there are times and seasons when we're told this idea of rejoicing and it doesn't feel like it lands with us. And that may be where you are. I don't think the problem is with the scripture, though. I don't think the problem is with God's word. I think the issue is with our definition of joy. So that's what I really want to unpack for you today as we look at the second half of chapter one of Philippians is I want to camp back out on something that Jose said last week. He said joy. Well, before I tell you, you might remember, but before I say that, what comes to mind for you? I want you to just get that preconceived notion out there in the open. So take it from unconscious to conscious. When I say joy, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Like, well, how would you define joy or what seems to represent joy when you think about that word? And I've talked to a lot of people this week, and it generally falls into one of two categories. The, the analytical folks, the mental folks, they think of joy as this mindset of blind optimism, like ignoring everything else that's going on in the world and just being blindly optimistic. Now, optimism, there is a continuum of that, right? And on one end, if we gave ourselves a score of a, <clears throat> of a one, it would be totally pessimistic, pessimistic about everything. A two on that scale would be, you know, a realistic pessimist, right? We kind of understand there is some reality, but it's going to turn out negative. We know it is. And then there's the threes. You guys are the realist, right? You're not having any thought, emotion, negative or positive. You're just going to actually clearly evaluate what's going on. Realist, that's a three. Fours are realistic optimist, right? It's like, all right, I know there's a reality, but I'm going to hope for the best in this case. And then fives are just the optimist. You know, like it's going to, I'm going to find the best in this. It's going to be great. It's going to turn out great. And then off the scale, six or seven is this blind optimist that doesn't even think about reality at all. And just that's what we kind of think joy is, right? This person that's naively going through life. Now, as I think about the scale, it's probably worth it since I just threw it out there. Rate yourself one to five. Where would you say you fall from pessimism to realism at three? And over here at five is optimism. Where would you fall? One, two, three, four, or five? I really want you to answer because I want you to be I don't want to be up here just talking about myself. I want y'all to participate. So when I say one, two, three, hold up the number that you represent. One, two, three, four, or five. We're not going to say any seven. So ready? One, two, three, hold it up. What do we got? All right, it's good. It's just good to know where you fall in that continuum. All right? Blind optimism is not what Paul is talking about in Philippians when he's talking about joy. The other thing that a lot of people answered as I talked to them was that they, they thought joy, they thought of a person usually or somebody in their life. And that person was like the biggest cheerleader in the world, right? It was like this enthusiastic, exuberant, excessive happiness. Like that's what they thought joy was. Like they could tell me the name of a person, I'd say describe them, and those were the words they would use. 
And that's a great trait to have. We need cheerleaders and encouragers in our life, but that's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about joy either. See, I think our problem with interpreting these verses is we think joy means those things that our culture tells us they are. Blind optimism and exuberant happiness all the time. And what Jose told us last week, and I think the scriptures bear out, is really that we need to think of joy differently. Joy is actually sustained hope and gratitude. And if you think of it that way, it changes the way we're going to interpret the things we go through in the book of Philippians. Joy is sustained hope and gratitude. I think there's plenty of scripture to back that up. There's a few verses on the screen up there from Romans. Be joyful in hope. That's where the joy comes from. It's, it, it's through hope that we are able to be joyful, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Romans 5.2 says, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, we rejoice in hope. Joy, joy and rejoicing is the sustained hope and gratitude. Gratitude, it talks a lot about gratitude as well. A couple of verses on that, or a verse that actually a quote. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See the rejoice and the thankfulness tied there. It is not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. So I'm trying to redefine joy because I want you to, so if you do it, if you buy into what I'm saying, you would actually replace, like even in that Thessalonians verse, instead of rejoice always, you would say sustain hope and gratitude always. Is that a little easier to swallow? Would that be easier to drive out of the parking lot later and say, you know what? I don't know how to be joy. I don't know how to be exuberantly happy all the time and blindly optimistic. But I think I probably could work hard at sustaining hope and gratitude as much as I could. I think that's what Paul's getting at. So we're going to unpack those thoughts a little bit in the message today. So Philippians 1, we got all the way through the first half of verse 18. So we're going to pick up there. And Paul says this, again, he's in prison, he's writing to the folks in, in Philippi, and he says this, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Again, this is, this is important for us to get our mind around because I think we lose people out there. We lose people in the culture who don't know Jesus when we, we misapply joy and misapply these, these truths in scripture, right? So Yes, and I will continue to, this guy's in prison and he said, I'm gonna continue to rejoice. I think what he's saying is, yes, I will continue to sustain hope and gratitude in the midst of being imprisoned. He says, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He says, there's a couple of things that are gonna help me sustain this hope and gratitude. One is that if joy's communal, I'm gonna need people to, your prayers are coming around me. Other people infusing hope in me helped my joy. And the second thing he says is the power of the Holy Spirit inside me. I rely on the Lord to help maintain that hope in the midst of this difficult circumstance and gratitude. And he uses the word deliverance there. The Greek word for deliverance actually has a couple of meanings. One could just mean he's being, he believes he's going to be delivered from prison. He believes he's going to be set free from prison. Another interpretation of the same word could mean that he believes eventually he's going to be set free from the world through salvation and spend eternity with Jesus. Both of those definitions have significant meaning in the verse, especially as you read on. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted 
in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker or something like that. Now you know where it is in context. Paul is saying that if I die in this prison, man, that's going to be amazing. That's a gain because I'm going to be free to spend eternity with my Savior. However, if I live, I'm going to live with Christ fully alive in my life, and I'm going to share him with everybody I can, and I'm going to share his word and his truth and his joy and his peace with anybody that I come across. It's a win-win for Paul. It's like, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but either way, I know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It goes on to say in verses 22, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. If I'm to go on living, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So he's at this fork in the road. I don't know if God's gonna bring me home to heaven or if I'm gonna stay here. But if I stay here, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Now, this is a good point to pause. I have people in my life who show up sometimes and the, the things are terrible. And, and they are. By earthly standards, they're, they're in an incredibly difficult circumstance. And they will say, I just need Jesus to come back. Anybody ever said that? We just need Jesus to come back, right? There's stuff going on in our country. If Jesus can just show up before whatever, the election or the whatever happens, it's gonna be better. And Paul's saying, you know what? I don't know when Jesus is gonna show up. But he's like, that's not going to be an escape route for me. Because if he chooses not to show up, I get other people that say, okay, I don't care. If Jesus isn't going to show up here, then I want him to take me up there where he is. I'm just ready to go be with Jesus. And Paul's saying, that's not a successful, that's not an out for you. Because if he chooses to leave you here in the difficult circumstance, you're going to have to work your way through it to the point that you can have fruitful labor. You can continue to represent him. So Paul's in that spot and he actually says, in the next verse, I am torn between the two. They both sound like good options to him. Stay here, hang out with the people I care about and continue to invest in them or go be with Jesus. They're great options either way. He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul's saying, look, I, I think what's going to happen is I'm going to stay and I'm going to get to write more and visit you guys more. I'm going to get to see more people and hopefully represent Christ more in my life. I hope that that's the case. If we are left here, that that's what we would do, that they would, we would represent him that way. I think it was um, Kenny Chesney that said, everybody wants to go to heaven, just nobody wants to go now. All right, here's the deal. That's great for a lost world, but for us as believers, if you don't want to go to heaven, it better be because you want to stay here and get as many other folks to go along with you as you can and live your life that way. What Paul is doing, though, in this verse is he's actually, in these verses, he's actually laying out how we can remain joyful in a world where things are devastating and hard. And it's, an, it's a powerful truth. It, it's probably, it's the secret, honestly. I'm just going to tell you, it's the secret to sustaining hope and gratitude when things aren't going your way. What Paul is doing is he's looking at the world on two levels. He's seeing things from two sets of lenses. You can do this too. You can see on two levels. You can see the, the, the temporal, earthly circumstance in front of you, and simultaneously you can see the eternal, beautiful perspective. 
You can do that, but we got to get better. We got to practice. So I'm going to give you a chance to practice seeing on two levels. You ready for this? All right, it's going to pop the images up there on the screen. Each of these images has more than one image embedded in it. So your goal is to try to see at least two things in each of those pictures. All right, so the first one in the top left corner is probably one of the most so famous social psychology illusions uh, that's out there. How many of you see the older woman? Anybody see the older woman up there? It's kind of, okay, how many of you see the younger woman? Can you see both of them in there? Okay, good. All right, the next one on the top across. Uh, how many of you see the rabbit first? Anybody see the rabbit first? Or how many of you see the duck first? Lots of, okay. Psychologically, what that means if you, no, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> not going to tell you. Not going to tell you, but there's plenty. That means there's a lot of counseling opportunities here. So, okay. <laughs> Next one, bottom left. What do you see? What do you see there? Can you see the, can you see both images in there? The candlestick or whatever, and then the faces. And then the bottom right, that was the hardest for me. Um, I, I honestly couldn't get it without help. Um, my... <laughs> My wife got it, and evidently she interpreted that as a sign of super high IQ, um, which may be. I don't know. Anybody else get the younger woman in the bottom picture, the bottom right? Babe, you're it. You are the, babe, you are it. You are on a whole different level. Yes. Way to go. You won. She likes to win. Okay. Thank you all for letting her do that. So all that is just a fun way to say there's usually more going on than what we see in front of us. All right? There's usually more going on than what we see in front of us. Right, you have to flip to the next slide or else they're not going to listen to anything <laughs> else that I say. So here's a great example of that. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a story about Elisha, and he's a prophet of God. And uh, the king of Aram is uh, coming to, wants to take their land, wants to defeat their army, God's army. And so Elisha keeps telling the king, he's like, hey, they're going to attack us over there, and we need to be ready. So the king of Israel sends his people over there, and sure enough, they defeat who comes. And he's like, hey, okay, they're going over there next. And so they get there ahead of them, and they're ready. They ambush them. They beat them again. And this, the king of Aram, he's starting to get frustrated at this point. He's like, there must be a spy in my camp that keeps telling them where we're going to go. And his general says, no, there's not a spy. There's just a guy over there, one of God's guys who keeps telling them ahead of us. And the king says, well, then we got to take that guy out. That makes the most sense. We want to win this military campaign. So they find out where Elisha's going to be at this little place called Dothan, and they decide they're going to go take him out. They send the whole army to take out Elisha so they can ultimately defeat God's army. Well, they get there. And that's where we pick this up in the story in 2 Kings. Um, early the next morning, the servant, a man of God, got a, so Elisha's servant gets up, and went out early the next morning, an army uh, with horses and chariots, so the, the bad guys had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. And here's the classic response. Don't be afraid. You're like, I don't know if you looked out the window, dude, but I'm telling you, there's a whole army out there and there's only us. They're coming for us. And uh, he said, don't be afraid. And so what, what Elisha does here is a good example for us learning to see on two levels he said, those men are, who are with, there are more men with us than, than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, talking about his servant, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, 
and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's just a classic example of what happens when you allow yourself to see on multiple levels. All that the servant could see was the enemy that was about to take them out in their current situation. But Elisha said, let me show you what's really going on in the bigger picture. And crazy stuff happened. It's a cool story, honestly. He went down there and there was some blinding and then they, they ended up winning. I mean, this, let me give you the Cliff Notes version of the story. God's army won. Um, but we have the ability to see on multiple levels at the same time. That's gonna prove important as we do some takeaways here in just a few minutes. Um, I told you Paul was able to see on multiple levels. That's what he was talking about. Even though I'm here in prison in the moment, I know God has a bigger strategy and a bigger plan. Elisha certainly was. Jesus, multiple times, there are examples of him seeing on multiple levels. Even in the garden, when he's there, and he's like, Lord, I feel, I, I feel what I'm feeling. I feel the pain of this situation. If there's any way you could take it from me, that'd be great. But if not, on the other level, I see that your will needs to be done. Even on the cross, as he was suffering in the moment, on that earthly temporal level, he still was seeing on eternal perspective and where things were going and why it was important for him to stay in that position. Seeing on two levels is critical. Paul taught us that in these verses in Philippians. The second thing about joy that I think is important we can unpack is we go a little further in Philippians. Whatever happens, Paul says, I don't know if I'll get out of prison. I don't know if God will take me home for sure. He said, but whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. For us, the translation here, the application is, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't. I don't know what kind of pain you're facing. I don't know what kind of difficulty or trial or trouble. Or maybe you're in an amazing place. Maybe everything is going great and it's awesome right now. But it says, whatever is going on in your life, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You ever had anybody sacrifice something great for you? Maybe you had a single mom growing up and she worked a couple of jobs and she did everything in her power so that you could have opportunities she didn't have. Maybe you've got a really good understanding of our military and how much our military does to protect us and give us the freedoms that we have. Maybe just really understand what Jesus did on that cross and the sacrifice he made. When you see and understand what people have done for you, what's been done for you. It makes you want to live your life in a worthy, right? I want to live my life worthy of the freedoms I've got in the United States. I want to live my life worthy of, you know, if you had a single mom that did that for you, that honors her memory. So he's saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. He's saying not only do the right thing, but stand firm together in unity. If you wanna, if you wanna live out this joy, this sustained hope and gratitude, it's gonna be hard to do by yourself. But if you make the right choices, do the right things and stand firm, persevere in unity, you've got a lot better shot at it. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved and that by God. And then the last couple of verses of the chapter one say, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Here's the thing. 
if you're new to this whole following Jesus thing, I may have some bad news and I may bust a bubble for you. He's not going to take away all of your problems. It's not. Matter of fact, he says the opposite. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. We will actually share in his suffering. We will go through hard things because we live in a fallen world and this place is not our home. But he's overcome the world and we can too. We can live joyously with sustained hope and gratitude if we live out a few principles that he's put in place for us. And Paul identifies them right here in these verses. So we'll wrap up with looking at these three takeaways for you. These kind of ways to sustain hope and gratitude in a world that's trying to rip it away from you. To remain joyous in a world that won't really allow you to do that. Number one, simultaneously experience what you are feeling and identify what God is doing. Two things there. I got to hang out this week with a community, one of our community groups, the guys early in the morning on Thursday morning. They're meeting at a time you shouldn't want to get up and meet at, so don't go join that one. I don't know what they're doing that early. Um, not really. If you're an early guy, that's a, it's a great group of guys. They had a traumatic thing happen the week before in their community group. And so I just went to talk them through kind of what they were experiencing as a result of that. And if you go and help somebody unpack trauma, there's kind of three things you need to do. Number one is you need to just talk about what happened. Well, what actually happened? And walk through that. Let them, let them describe that. And number two is, well, what were you feeling and experiencing as a result of what happened? And number three is, what do you think God was up to in the bigger picture of all of that? Those are three things you unpack when you're hanging with somebody walking through a tragedy or trauma. Of those three, this group of strong, faithful Christian men, which one of them you think was the hardest for them? Yeah, the second one was really hard. Like they did a good job describing the experience and then they fast forwarded right to, you know what God was doing in that moment? I said, well, what were you feeling? Well, I'll tell you what God was doing in that moment. I know, but what were you feeling? Well, this is what happened. No, no, what were you feeling? And that's hard. But you guys, if you can allow yourself to experience that in the moment, it's going to save you a lot of trouble later on. You got to be able to, under, God's cool with your feelings. He's okay with those things. Not just your feelings, but your overall experience. Your thoughts about what you're experiencing. Your thoughts and your feelings around what you're experiencing are great things for you to be able to unpack. Now make sure you're hearing me. I'm not saying waller around in those and let them dictate your life and your decisions and your choices. But I'm saying if you ignore those or deny those and you just fast forward to the second half of the sentence on the screen, well, I know God's got it. I'm faithful. I'm rejoicing no matter what. It's going to be great. God's in control. If you go straight to those things, you're going to rob yourself of getting the healing and the comfort God really wants you to get. And we're going to mess up on the witness that he really wants us to have in the world. Because people don't want to fast forward to a God that doesn't care about their experience, nor should they want to. Because he does. He loves us. We're his children. And if we're hurting, he wants to go there. If we're rejoicing, he wants to go there with us. He wants to hang in that experience. And then wants to stay there and remember that he's up to something. If Romans 8.28 is your go-to verse when somebody is hurting, I would encourage you to try something a little different. Because that verse says, hey, God works everything out to the good for those who are, you know, love him. Yeah, your marriage is terrible. Don't worry, God's going to work that out for good. Your life's in shambles. Don't worry. God's gonna, if you fast forward through the caring about where they are, you're robbing them of the chance to feel cared for and understood and empathize with that they need. Does that make sense? I'm kind of camping here. Sorry. All right, number two. Well, oh, there's a good verse too. 
Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. That's true, you guys. Whatever it is, we're suffering in the moment. He cares about that, but it's nothing on the, compared to the second level and where we're going. Get good at being able to process feelings and thoughts on two levels. What's happening in the moment and what's God up to in my life. The second thing that we learn from this second half of Philippians is that we got to do the right thing. Even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, we got to do the right thing. I mean, the Bible tells us what to do in most every situation. We need to do the right thing. It says, conduct yourselves, live your life in a way that's worthy of the gospel. What he's saying is do the right thing. What would God want you to do in this moment and do it? But I don't know it's going to produce the result. It doesn't matter. Do the right thing. And you'll be surprised in the long run how much joy, how much sustaining hope and gratitude you get if you're willing to just do the next right thing. And then let the consequences fall and then do the next right thing. Doing the wrong thing for the right motives is never the right thing. Do the right thing. There's a passage in John chapter 15, verse 11. I don't know if you've ever, 15, 11, skip to the second half for a second. It says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's pretty cool. That's what I want. I want Jesus. I want his joy in me so that my joy we could be complete. That sounds perfect. Well, it comes on the heels of verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Whoa. So the joy comes after I do the right thing, after I keep his commands. If I'm willing to do the right thing, joy follows that. All right, so we're seeing on two levels, that's gonna produce more sustaining hope and gratitude. We are doing the right thing in the moment, regardless of what we think the outcome might be. And the third thing that Paul teaches us is that we can't do this by ourselves. We need to do unity and stand firm. We need each other. You guys, joy is a communal activity. It's hard to pull it off. It's, I mean, there are times in that, in that dark spot when we lost Avery, we wouldn't have made it by ourselves. We had a community of people and we had a family that came around us and we borrowed hope from them. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in a place when you had no hope and you had to borrow it from the people around you? That's what community is about. That's why God says it's not good for man to be alone. Romans, it says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We need to show up for each other so that we can borrow hope and remind of gratitude when the person you're with doesn't have it and their circumstance don't dictate, dictate that they should have it. We need to be willing to do life fully engaged, open and vulnerable with safe people who will come alongside us when we need to borrow hope from them. And we need them to tell us what it looks like on that second level because all we can experience is the level that's right in front of us. All we can feel is that level. It's hard. Man, this life is hard. You need people alongside you. Man, there are times. I, I've been following Brock Purdy's story. I, you know, you guys know I love football. And that dude, man, I just love the way he's conducted himself with success. He's the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. And... Uh, Man, he, he was not wanted in college. He was not wanted barely in the pros, last guy. Then he was third string. And then he, you know, he's earned his way and he's given God the credit all the way, all along. 
And then they got to the Super Bowl and he did everything he could. Sure, he made mistakes. Did, brought them back three times from deficits. And still, at the end of the game, that Kansas City dude <laughs> threw a touchdown and, and beat him to my son-in-law's happiness, I'm sure. Um, I was curious. It's like, how's he going to respond? What's Brock Purdy's next comment going to be? You know what? It was sustaining hope and gratitude. That's what it was. it was. It was not exuberant happiness, joy. It wasn't blind optimism. It was this joy, this calm, peaceful joy that said, we didn't accomplish everything we wanted, but we did everything we could and we grew together as a team. That communal aspect of joy, you know, and he said, I know God's up to something, two levels here, and I'm gonna continue to serve him faithfully regardless of the outcome. You guys, that's just football. I get it. It's just football. Stupid. But it's a model, man. He, he, he's a model for how we should pursue hope and gratitude. Those group of guys on Thursday morning, they're led by a really good friend of mine. And uh, I love Ken to death. But he's been telling me for a while about how he wakes up early in the morning and he worries. Like, not. It's, it's still nighttime in my book for three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. And he worries and this anxiety and the things that, you know, the enemy throws at him. But he said, but man, the sun comes up and every time the sun comes up and he said, I just, I feel refreshed and renewed. And, and, but he said, I can't stop those negative thoughts when it's dark. And it reminded me of this verse uh, that says, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And if, man, if that meant for Ken exuberant expressions of enthusiasm and he ran around his house because the sun was up excited, none of those worries would go away. But if that means weeping may stay for the night, but sustaining hope and gratitude come in the morning, that's true. That's true. I want it for all of you guys. I want you to experience that joy that comes from a relationship with Jesus and walking it out. Let's pray. Thank you. Just thank you, Lord, that when we get confused, it's usually us. It's not your word. Your word is not confusing. It is, it is alive. It is active. It is applicable in our life even today. And in the deepest, darkest moments, we can remain joyful because joy is about hope and gratitude. And Lord, in the most exciting, incredible times, we can be joyful because it's about hope and gratitude. So for those here, Lord, that know you as Savior, I pray we would exude more of your joy to those around us. And for anybody who doesn't yet know you, I pray they would be curious. I pray they would pursue you. I pray they would ask somebody here on staff a question about what it looks like to really allow you to be Lord of their life and Savior of their soul. Thank you, Lord for loving us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Messages podcast. You can dive deeper into the messages weekly by subscribing to the Conversations podcast, where we dig into the previous Sunday's message, unpacking how we can apply it further in our daily lives. See you again next week.